You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. In July, earlier in the year, while I was on vacation, this story broke that was really kind of depressing and amazing and an indictment of our culture, of American culture and the safety net that doesn't exist and the shitty fucking jobs that are available to people out there. A mom, a single parent who had a job at a McDonald's where she was making shit money, didn't know what to do with her nine-year-old daughter. For a long time, when mom was at work, the child had sat in the McDonald's with a tablet computer playing games. And then the tablet computer was stolen Kid was bored, and so mom gave her daughter permission to go play in a park near the McDonald's. Took her to that park near the McDonald's, near where she works. And this was a park full of children and parents. This wasn't some heroin den. This wasn't some dangerous, bramble-covered fucking shooting gallery in the woods. This was a park full of children. This was a playground. And halfway through the day, uh, a parent asked this little girl who had gotten in no trouble and was in no way threatened and hadn't been endangered or harmed in any way where her mom or dad was. And the girl said that she was there alone and her mom was at work. And this parent called the police and the mom who had dropped her daughter off at the park was arrested, charged with felony child endangerment, was fired from her job at McDonald's. So that's one nine-year-old girl over here. The parents of another nine-year-old girl, parents from New Jersey, took their daughter, age nine, to a shooting range in Arizona last week where they filmed their daughter, their precious child, using an Uzi, getting a lesson at the shooting gallery, at the shooting range, in how to fire an Uzi. And this is a shooting range where children as young as eight are allowed to fire guns. And there was a, an instructor with this child showing her how to use this Uzi. The video is online and it is frightening and disturbing. Even if you don't know how it ends, it's frightening and disturbing to see a nine-year-old little girl with a pigtail and pink shorts firing a fucking Uzi. Uh, as I'm sure all of you know, the Uzi, when the gun instructor set it to automatic, recoiled in her hand as she fired it, and she blew the brains out of her gun instructor. 39-year-old guy, dead. Those parents, parents who put an Uzi into their daughter's, nine-year-old daughter's hands, and allowed her to fire it, which resulted in the death of a man not facing any criminal charges at all. The police are calling this an industrial accident. So here we have two nine-year-old girls. One dropped off in a park, comes to no harm, harms no one, mom indicted and fired. And here we have a nine-year-old girl taken to a gun rage by her parents. A man is dead, no one indicted. This has happened before. Welcome to America, where... You have to be 16 to get a learner's permit and 21 to get a drink, but there is no age limit on when you can have a gun placed into your hands. An eight-year-old boy at a shooting range in Massachusetts, at a gun show in Massachusetts, was also given an Uzi just a few years ago. It also recoiled in his hands because those guns are too powerful for children to hold and too powerful really for any civilian to possess at all ever. But instead of killing the gun instructor – or one of the idiots around him who put that Uzi in his hand, it killed the eight-year-old boy. The gun recoiled just the same, but the bullets went into his head, and he is dead. 
The single mom who dropped her daughter off at the park who came to no harm whatsoever, African-American. The parents who took their daughter to the gun range where a man is now dead, white and middle class. Working poor African-American mom, indicted, loses her job. No one is dead. No one is harmed. Middle class, white, parents, put an Uzi in the hands of their nine-year-old daughter, film her firing it. A man is dead and nothing, no charges, not even for the gun range, just an industrial accident. Nothing to see here. Move along. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, is entirely staffed by Voldemorts, sent out a tweet the day after this happened, recommending an article with seven ways for your children to have fun at the gun range. They're just fucking trolls. This country is sick, gun sick, and also hatred of the poor sick. We passed welfare reform in the mid-90s. Clinton signed it into law, Bill Clinton, and it requires the working poor who are receiving welfare, single mothers, to have jobs, hustles them into jobs, bullies them into jobs. But then when they get jobs, minimum wage jobs, that don't pay enough for them to find private childcare. There's no childcare services for these mothers. So we say you have to get a job, but then if you aren't paying attention to your child 24 hours a day, if you're not accompanying your young child everywhere she goes, we will arrest you. And on top of that, we're going to do everything we can to make it harder for you to obtain birth control or health care for you or your child. And then when your child is endangered by this system, not by you, mom, but by this system, we're going to arrest you and charge you with child endangerment. But if you put an Uzi in the hands of your daughter, oh no, you're fine. No problem, nothing to see here. Move along, industrial accident. In this story with these two nine-year-old girls, you can see very clearly two major fucking cancers on our society. The way we persecute and punish and prosecute the working poor and their children and the way we refuse to do anything about our gun problem. This is completely unrelated. Jumping to Canada, there is a sort of candid camera show in Canada that Terry and I love. Every time we're up there snowboarding, we turn on the TV and there it is just for laughs. You can actually find a lot of their – Videos on YouTube, just for laughs, gags. Go look it up. Great stuff, really funny. It's made in Montreal. It's all silent film comedy. Uh, you know, they're playing pranks on unsuspecting people in public, and it's really fucking addictive, particularly if you're stoned. It's really funny. You can watch, I speak from personal experience, you can waste a whole evening watching three or four hours of this. But every once in a while, when Terry and I are watching just for laughs, gags, and it's an elaborate prank the kind of prank that may upset people initially before they find out it's a prank. We look at each other and go, hey, yeah, you couldn't make that in America. You couldn't film that in Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or Seattle or Portland or Dallas because you would get shot. Because the odds that one of the people you're pranking on the street might have a gun and might get so pissed off that they would shoot you, about a thousand percent. There's also a candid camera style prank show uh, from a sane country in South America, uh, a very famous prank where they had a guy dressed up in a clown suit hiding around a corner. And as people came around the corner, he had this huge mallet and they had a dummy laid on the ground to look like a person with a, with a fake head. And then he swung the mallet just so people would come around the corner so they could see what looked like a killer clown murdering someone. The fake head exploded, blood went everywhere. The clown looked up see the people who just witnessed him and start chasing them with his mallet. It's fucked up. This candid camera show is a little edgy and fucked up, but you look at that prank and you go, yeah, you couldn't make that in America. Crazy killer clown chasing people through the streets. You couldn't, you couldn't get insurance for that production in America because that crazy clown would get shot. Sometimes you really have to leave this country 
to see clearly the ways in which we're fucked, to see clearly the ways in which our culture is deeply distorted by our hatred and desire to punish the poor and by our obsession and love of guns and our inability to confront our gun problem, do anything about it, pass a law that says, you know what, maybe you have to have a driver's license to fire an Uzi at a gun range. Maybe you can't be nine. This gun range, Bullets and Burgers, it's called, they host children's birthday parties and you have to be eight. You only have to be eight years old to be handed an Uzi. It's staggering, this sickness in this country. Our founding fathers could all be chucked into a time machine in 1776 and they could come here and see the damage done by the Second Amendment. They would rip it up. They were sensible, practical people. That's why they made the document, the Constitution of the United States, amendable. Because they didn't think they got everything perfectly right. They didn't think that that document was divinely inspired, which some right-wing fundamentalist Christians in the United States seem to think. I don't think any document that describes African-Americans as three-fifths of a human being is divinely inspired. Maybe I have a higher opinion of the divine than they do. But they would amend it, and we should amend it. How many dead kids? How many dead gun range instructors? How many schools shut up before we amend and or tear up the Second Amendment? All right, let's shake that off. Coming up today on the show, lots of your questions, of course, and joining us for the magnum edition of today's Savage Lovecast, Simon Doonan, creative director at Barney's, author, columnist for Slate, here to talk with us about camel toes. All of that and more on today's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old. I'm calling because I have a problem. So my boyfriend of... Eight years, and I just broke up about three weeks ago. We bought a house together about two years ago, and he's been nice, and he's been helping me pay the mortgage, but I think I may have to get a roommate. So the problem is that my friend is breaking up with his boyfriend and needs somewhere to move in. But the last time he broke up with his boyfriend, his boyfriend got like crazy stalker and will go outside the place he was living and honk his horn in the middle of the night. So I'm afraid it's going to be really chaotic and dramatic and things might get domestic violence and I really don't want to deal with that. But I'd like to get a roommate sooner rather than later so that I can break ties more with my ex. I don't know if it's a good decision. He offered to help me pay the mortgage for six months, so I don't know if I should wait and let him keep helping me or have my friend move in. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yours is one of those questions that forces me to confront my own hypocrisy because my gut reaction, what I want to tell you, what I want to advise you, what I want to be heard telling you is to do the right thing by your friend and your ex. Your ex is being extraordinarily generous um, and responsible and stepping up. And if you can get a roommate uh, and relieve him of the burden of helping you pay your mortgage so he can get on with his life and you can get on with yours and separate from him, you should do that. And that you have this good friend who is looking for a place to live, who needs a roommate situation, who needs to move out, who's in perhaps a bad situation uh, that he needs to escape, seems like the natural sort of fix and you should do it and you shouldn't penalize your friend uh, who needs a place to go and a place to live 
uh, because his boyfriend is an asshole. If he's in a, you know, emotionally or even physically dangerous situation with this guy and needs to get out, uh, you should step up and you should help him even at the risk of a little chaos and drama and honking outside your house in the middle of the night. And I say all that to you knowing that if I were you, I would have the exact same hesitation that you do. I wouldn't want to invite that kind of chaos and drama into my life. I wouldn't want somebody sitting out in front of my house honking their horn at three o'clock in the morning. I wouldn't want to worry for weeks or months as I walked up to my house about what might be going on inside it or who might be lurking outside it. And I would hesitate to step up and help. So what should I tell you to do? Perhaps I should urge you to think about it, to do your due diligence, what I hope I would do if I were in your shoes after I worked through my initial hesitation. Uh, do your due diligence. Go talk to your friend. How is this breakup going? Is the decision now mutual or is his boyfriend going to be the same angry, psycho, raving lunatic he was last time? And get a sense for where they're at now. Just because his boyfriend went bonkers last time doesn't mean that his soon-to-be ex-boyfriend will go bonkers this time. What's your friend's strategy if he does? Is he going to get a restraining order? Does the boyfriend know where you live? Will the boyfriend know where he is? Because who knows? Talking to your friend, you may find the assurances you need that will make you feel more comfortable about having him move in with you. Or talking to your friend, you may find out that things are absolutely batshit crazy, that his ex is psycho and violent, and he is afraid. In which case, if his ex knows where you live, you might not be the right choice of a place to live for your friend. That it might be a better idea, irrespective of your own qualms, for him to get an apartment or go live in a part of town or move for a while to a place where his ex just doesn't know where he is and can't track him down. So do your due diligence, have a conversation with your friend. If, it, if you feel better about it after that convo, invite him to move in with you. If it's clear after that convo that moving in with you would be a drama generator for you, it would be a better idea for him to find a place where his ex can't find him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old straight female who's currently living abroad for the summer. And so I'm calling because a couple of weeks ago, I was at a bar by myself after a friend had left, and I was approached by a very good-looking guy who had nothing but compliments for me. Um, he told me that I was very beautiful, and he was just super smooth. Uh, so long story short, I ended up making out with this guy for the rest of the night and going home with him. Um, and I know that it was just a little sling, but it was just so hot. I was sleeping with and showering with this beautiful 22-year-old French guy, and I was just thinking about him for the rest of the week. And so I decided to get in touch with him about a week later when the weekend rolled around, and I asked him what he was doing. Um, he told me that it was his last night. Um, and she planned on going out. Uh, so I ended up seeing him at the same bar where we had met a week beforehand. Um, we, sm we spoke for about uh, a minute or so, um, but then I didn't see him again for a while until I noticed him flirting with and then making out um, with another girl for the rest of the night uh, for several hours. <laughs> And he was just making out with this girl everywhere. They were making out um, right next to me at one point. So I decided that I wasn't going to let this guy ruin my night. Um, so I continued dancing. Um, but I did give him a little piece of my mind right before I left. I basically just told him, I hope that you're having a fun night, but fuck you. And uh, he was a little angry about this, but he uh, clearly wasn't so unfazed because he continued making out with the girl for at least another hour. 
Um, and one of his friends made a comment to me about how um, I was just, uh, I had stronger feelings for this guy than he had for me. And that just kind of struck a nerve for me because I've heard that from a lot of guys before that um, that I'm more into them than they're into me. And I'm kind of confused about it because I felt like I was pretty casual about this and I um, don't really think that it's expecting too much to um, just expect someone to be respectful after you've had intimate uh, relations with them just a few days beforehand. Um, so I just, I realized that I am not a casual girl. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for something that's deeper, a deeper connection. Um, but I just keep running into situations like this that I meet a guy and um, we are dating even for five months and he tells me that he's just looking for something casual, that I'm more into it than him and he's not uh, wanting anything serious. Um, so I'm just wondering, I would like your advice um, about how to maintain and get a healthy relationship without sacrificing sex because I I can't wait for very long after I meet someone to have sex with them. Um, I've been known to sleep on the first uh, date, but I usually try to wait for a week or two if I can, and I can't imagine waiting any longer than that. Um, so what is your advice? Um, how can I find guys who actually respect me and just avoid these really frustrating and um, shitty situations where guys don't really respect me? So you had a one-night stand with this hot French guy, uh, and then a week later, you mentioned you'd like to see him again, and you managed to engineer being in the same place at the same time, and you chatted briefly for a minute, and then he made himself scarce. That was everything you needed to know about his feelings, his intentions, uh, and what that one-night stand was for him. It was a one-night stand, and he, for whatever reason, wasn't interested in a repeat. All that information was communicated when he made himself scarce, when he disappeared. Then when you saw him making out with somebody else in the bar, that was a clear indication that he wasn't interested in, in getting with you again. And that's painful and horrible, but that's his right. He's not obligated to want to fuck you again, and he's not obligated because you are in the bar. He's not obligated because there's someone there who would like to fuck him again or like to fuck him at all to behave in certain ways or to refrain from doing certain things. So, you know, as painful as that was, I think if it was as upsetting to you as it clearly was since you sought him out toward the end of the night to say fuck you to him on the way out, perhaps you should have excused yourself a little earlier and gone off to some other bar in this town full of other guys, other potential French guys that you could have hooked up with. But instead, you stayed, you observed, you stewed, presumably you glared and shot daggers. And then when you had your chance, you walked up to him and gave him a piece of your mind, told him, fuck you. And he didn't react well to that. And you say you did that on your way out. And then you say you continued to observe him making out with this other woman for another hour. Why would you torture yourself like that? Why stick around, right? Unless you enjoy getting upset. And you know, I'm not trying to rub your nose in this just to be cruel, but it seems to me that, that in this story, perhaps we can diagnose your problem with other guys. And what I think might be at play here, what I think may be spooking guys uh, early in your relationships with them is that after you're sexual, after intimate, after you're dating for a little bit, even after you fuck them once, 
you then seem to believe that they have obligations, that they have a responsibility to behave in certain ways, uh, that they are now in some way cosmically, sexually, romantically, emotionally indebted to you and that they should from here on out behave in certain ways. And perhaps that sense, conscious or subconscious on the part of these guys that having now become intimate with you, sexual with you, involved with you, that they are under a kind of scrutiny, that they're under a certain obligation to you is spooking them and scaring them off. And I'm reading a lot into this situation, right? But I think this situation is perhaps very illustrative or telling. So my advice to you would be to adjust your expectations, that you had an expectation going into that bar that that guy, because of his interaction with you, because of that one-night stand, that his behavior would have to be tailored, limited, that he was not allowed to do X, Y, and Z because of that, because of your one-night stand. And he was under no obligation to you. You had a one-night stand without negotiating a monogamous commitment for the rest of your lives or negotiating any sort of emotional primacy or consideration beforehand. He was well within his douchey player rights to do whatever the fuck he was doing in that bar that night, as you would have been if you had had a one-night stand with him, you weren't so into him, and then you ran into him or he happened to be in the same bar you were in later that week, later that month, and you were carrying on with some other guy. You're not under no obligation to somebody you fucked a week ago or a month ago, three months ago, a year ago, when they stroll into a place where you're pursuing someone else. You don't have to go, oh, it might hurt that person's feelings. If they see me with this other person, they'll get, they'll understand that I'm not that into them and they'll be hurt. So I'm going to not pursue this person I am interested in. You wouldn't behave that way. You wouldn't limit yourself in that way, but you believe this guy should be limited in that way because you were there and you were having a feeling and feelings are great and people should take other people's feelings into consideration, but your feeling isn't a veto. It doesn't give you control over someone else's actions or choices so when you ask what the problem might be with these other guys you've dated, with guys feeling as if you're way more into them than they are into you, I wonder if that's not playing out in your other relationships in the same way it played out in this brief relationship, that you believe your feelings are somehow paramount or that when you're having a feeling, someone else instantly has an obligation. And that's not necessarily so, right? Our partner's feelings we have to take into consideration, but our partner's feelings aren't a lever by which we can be controlled or steered or directed. So like I said, I'm reading a lot into the situation you described. This is just food for thought, something to think about. If as you sit listening, as you unpack your prior relationships, you detect some truth in what I'm saying, then maybe you need to adjust your expectations and not regard the guys that you're with as being obligated to you in ways that you would not feel obligated to them. And if you can unpick that lock, if you can correct that, maybe you'll scare fewer guys off. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old gay male, and my question is I am recently out just about six months ago, so it's still kind of a new thing for me. I'm still in a period of adjustment to being out and open which I'm embarrassed about, to say the least, <clears throat> that it's taken me so long, so it's certainly more difficult at this age. But what my question is, is I've been on uh, three dates with uh, a guy that I really like, and uh, I've never been with another man before sexually, so this is still really, really new to me. 
And on our third date, we both kind of had the expectation that things would most likely escalate. We're just really into each other and really hit it off. And so we're making out in the parking lot and he stops me after I ask him if he wants to come over. Um, and he says he has something he has to tell me. And so he tells me that he is HIV positive. And I reacted, I think, as calmly as possible and, and thanked him for being so honest and upfront about that uh, and that I appreciated that and I thought it was really brave of him. And he asked me if it changes things and I said, I'm not sure. We kissed a few more times and then parted our ways. Uh, and so now I'm just wondering, I don't know how to handle this. I honestly am terrified and I hate that that is the case um, because he was brave enough to tell me that I should be brave enough to know that uh, we can be safe about things and that uh, it's not as bad as it might sound as long as we're careful. And I wish I felt that way. And really, I just feel uh, like if this is going to be my first time, am I in way over my head? And it's a little overwhelming. I don't know if I have the emotional stability to handle it, um, but it makes me feel like a giant piece of shit. And it makes me feel really guilty because he's obviously such a nice guy and he's been so good and he doesn't really deserve to be treated that way. And I just wonder which way I should go, I guess is what I'm asking. Joining me by phone, Dr. V. Chu, co-founding member of Capitol Hill Medical, Seattle's LGBT-focused primary care clinic. Uh, Hey, Dr. Chu, thanks for jumping on the phone. Oh, sure. Good to talk to you. Uh, You too. Uh, And thanks for coming back. We, We always love having you on. Something about this call made me feel like it was shattering the space-time continuum and I was getting a call from 1989 or 1992. Yeah. The, he's only 32 and he's just come out, but the terror that, is, that he feels just seems so out of all proportion to the actual risks and consequences now of HIV infection if, if he would, were to become infected, which is highly unlikely if he's, his partner is doing what? You want to unpack the medical for him? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what struck me about it too, Dan. Like he, he used the word terror, right? I mean, this guy's, I feel, you know, you got to real, um, really feel for the guy. He's, he has so much anxiety about this. He found a, a really great guy that he, he likes a lot. And yet um, this sort of fear is getting in the way. And of course it's always okay to have anxiety about things, but I guess what we can try to do is just make sure that his anxiety is well placed, right? Like he has a certain um, appropriate amount and you're right though. Um, you know, we can make some assumptions here, but you know, if if this person that he met that he really likes is uh, HIV positive, we can probably assume because this is the case for most people who know their status as HIV positive, they're probably on medication, they're probably undetectable, they're doing just fine. And there've been a lot of studies that tell us now that um, when the HIV positive partners on medications, their actual risk of infection is super low. Now, now wait for, for for the lay person out there. When you say they're undetectable, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. So undetectable, you know, we uh, basically if you sample, if you get a blood sample um, you, you, and you, you run it through the machine to try to find viral uh, particles, copies of the HIV virus, they don't find any. Um, and the medications we have are, are so good these days that when you, when you, when you have someone on, on the meds and they're taking their medications all the time, you, could, you generally get them to undetectable. And if you think about it, if there's no virus detected in the blood that implies that the viral, sort of the viral load of the body is extremely low, and if there's less virus around, it's much harder to infect someone because you kind of need virus to infect someone. What the studies have shown is that people with undetectable viral loads are effectively non-infectious. 
you know, there's some really, really cool studies that have come out that sh- that that do uh, that are suggesting that are kind of backing that up. And the most recent one was um, reported earlier this year. And basically, it, it was a really cool study. They actually took something like I think I want to say like 800 couples, and these are gay and straight couples, which is very important because you know that like vaginal and anal mucosa are very different. But basically, these are serodiscordant couples, right? One positive, one negative. And in order to be involved in the study, you had to report two things. One is that you generally tended to not use condoms or be really inconsistent with condoms. So that's one of them, right? So they didn't like using condoms. And the other one was that the partner who's taking the medications, their viral loads generally had to always be below 200. So we're not even talking about undetectable. We're just talking low. Um, and below 200 is pretty low, but not quite undetectable, but very low. Most people are actually much lower than 200. And they followed these couples for like, I think it was like, something like 40,000 sexual acts or maybe something like 30,000 sexual acts. Um, You know, they'd come in for testing and then you'd give them a questionnaire like how many times you have sex this week. And so they're having unprotected sex, right? Followed for two years. And guess how many people were infected? How many many HIV negative partners in these service scoring couples were infected after two years and something like 30,000 sex sex acts? Um, How many? I'm on the edge of my seat. Zero. Actually, it was zero. No one became infected. So this guy, his question is, does this change things? And my answer to him would be to that question, yes, it does. It does change things. That you as a negative person have a right to some anxiety. If you want to stay negative, you have a right to take this into consideration. But what it changes in this instance is the change you have to make is you have to get better informed. Because paradoxically, and I don't think he understands this, and a lot of neg guys don't understand this, he's at more risk from someone who's positive and doesn't know it than he is from someone who's positive and discloses it to him. And I'm so glad you said that because right now, part of trying to reverse and, and, and speak to and reduce HIV stigma is, to, is for us to realize sort of the nature of the epidemic right now. And to be quite honest, like when someone knows their status as positive, they're going to be plugged into care. They're going to be on medication. Their viral load is going to be low or zero. We kind of know where they are. Now, the epidemic is not one of those who are HIV positive. And what I mean by that is it's generally being spread by people who think they're negative but are newly positive. So that's where we get into trouble when we start to try to serosort, right? I'm only going to sleep with neg guys. And then when you sleep with only neg guys, you think, oh, well, then, you know, they're HIV negative. So I'm gonna, we're going to have more, you know, I'm going to be more likely to have bareback sex. But actually, that's where you get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So the whole concept of, like, the HIV positive person on meds being the one who's actually probably some of the safer sex you can have out there, especially if you're using condoms. Okay, so, but, but he has a right. When somebody, this guy, other guys who are neg, when the guy does the right thing and discloses and deserves credit for that, right. you have a right as the neg person to say, are you on drugs? I, I don't think that you just assume, oh, he's on, he, if he knows he's positive oh, yeah. and disclosed, that I can safely assume that he's in treatment, that he's on the drug cocktails, that he is right. undetectable. I think you have a right to ask those follow-up questions. Oh, like, what's I, your I, viral I totally load? do. Are, are you on medications? As a neg person, you have a right to advocate for your own safety and ask those follow-up questions. And invariably, I think with, with a guy who discloses, who's that responsible, do the right thing, you're going to hear, I am undetectable, I am on the drugs. And also, now the neg guy has a drug option of his own. Oh, totally, yeah. So Truvada. Truvada. Right, So, so right, this, guy exactly. could, th- this guy, this 32-year-old guy who's thinking about being with this pause guy, Run it to ground. Find out if he's on drugs. Ask him about his uh, viral load. Consider going on Truveda, which offers extreme protection, very effective protection for you as the negative Yeah, guy. if you take it every day, right? And use a condom, and you are 
likelier to get hit by a meteorite than you are to get infected during that I'm, sex act. I'm absolutely in agreement with that. If you're using condoms, if the person is HIV positive is on meds and, and the negative person is on Truvada, man, that's you're going to need, need to play a lot of what-ifs uh, in order for that person to be infected. And I'd, I'd feel pretty good about that person. Now, having said that, I mean, he's he's kind of gay 101, right? I mean, he's, he's just out. He's, this is his first real guy that he's really uh, um, into. And so I think really, really good conversations are going to be coming up between those two um, and even after all that, you know, when you, when we've had the last 30 years of sort of, there's been a lot of fear-based, you know, safer sex campaign, uh, information campaigns, and that's where that comes from. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, HIV is this death sentence and we're still kind of shaking, you know, rubbing that from our eyes right now. And so that's mm-hmm. where that comes from. And I think it's okay for him to still have this anxiety, but as long as he realizes that the, it's, it's kind of misplaced, of course, it's always going to be like the idea that I'm having sex with an HIV positive person is going to be something for him as a new, a gay 101 to kind of learn to get over. Um, you know, hopefully he'll be able to, to stay with this person and, and learn a lot more about HIV uh, risk. And then, you know, and maybe even this, with this person will be advanced to gay 201 and maybe 301 and 401 and reach the sort of the blissful point where you're, you, you know enough about HIV that you, you can date someone and have a really health, healthy sexual life with them and not have that worry. And after you've dated around for a little while, if you do dump this guy, you're going to realize, caller, that finding someone who's nice and responsible and sexy and attractive and you're into being with that guy who happens to be pause is a lot better than being with somebody who happens to be neg that you don't like very much or is kind of a jerk or is, or is abusive or is a drunk or has other problems that are much more problematic and less attractive. Oh my gosh. So all the heavy lifting has been done, it seems. So he just, you know, needs to wrap his head around that a little bit more. And, then and he can take it slow. Way. You can say to this guy, you know, I, I've listened to Dan and uh, Dr. Chu talk about this. I've gotten online and I've done some more reading. I'm more comfortable. But the least, but the first couple of times are intimate. Let's just roll around. Let's just jack off. Let's just do mutual masturbation. Help me gradually ease my way into gay sex. I've never had gay sex. <laughs> gay sex with you once, once I've conquered these fears. And if this guy is as good and nice and kind and responsible as you make him sound – I can't imagine he would have a problem with that. No, no one would have a problem with that. Pazerneg, who was worth sleeping with, would have a problem yeah. with that. Pazerneg. He's going to do. He's going to do well by himself for his HIV positive partner and for all HIV positive people out there, and actually all gay men out there, um, if he can wrap his head around that. Doctor V Chu, co-founding member of Capitol Hill Medical, Seattle's LGBT-focused primary care clinic. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Doctor Chu. Thanks again, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a gay male, 23 years old. I'm dating this guy that he's 18 years old, and we've been dating for four months already. Because of certain circumstances, he had to move in with me maybe two, three months ago because his parents don't want him to live with him anymore. So we've been having a lot of fights. It's been getting physical sometimes. I can't really say I trust him because I have a lot of trust issues and because he's cheated on me twice. One time that really hurt me was when he went and did it in the in our apartment while some friends were there and my friends caught him. After that, we got in a really bad fight and my friends kind of stepped out and we got really, really physical to the point that he fractured his arm 
and sprained his ankle. After that, I told him that I was never going to get physical again with him, that, that this was probably both of our fault. And now it's been a month, and he's the one that gets physical. He hits me. He gets mad out of everything. And, I mean, even till today, he had a bag of clothing with shoes on, and he just smacked me with all that because I was being an asshole. I was being rude this morning, and I don't even know. I love him, but I just do not know if we should continue this. I am thinking that maybe he's 18 years old, and I'm 23, and... And maybe that's a huge gap, and he hasn't experienced much. I'm not saying I've experienced much as well, so we're both young. But I don't know what to do, Dan. If I do break up with him, he would have to move out. He has no money and nowhere to go. His parents will take him. And the friends that he has, he can't really go with them because he's tried it before. So I don't know what to do. The age difference isn't the problem here. There are lots of 23-year-olds dating 18-year-olds who have healthy, non-violent, uh, loving relationships. The problem here is not the age difference. It's the violence issue uh, that you two are going at each other, that you two are physically assaulting each other. You know, I wasn't there and I haven't seen the video, but if you two have a fight uh, and somebody walks away with a sprained arm and a fractured ankle, that's not something you use the passive voice about. That is something that you did. That's not a coincidence that you two happened to be having a fight and in an unrelated development, he walked away from that fight with a fractured ankle and a sprained arm. No, that happened during the fight. Whoever instigated it, whoever bears more responsibility for it, you did that to him. He needs to get away from you, and you need to get away from him. He is also, per your call, taking your word for it, being violent with you. You two are not good together. You both probably need, if you have the resources, a little therapy. You both probably need some anger management classes. You both need to get a grip so that in future relationships, you don't resort to this kind of violence. Because eventually it will get one or the other or both of you tossed into prison. But that's not what you asked about. You asked about what to do in the short term. You're living together. He has nowhere to go. You love him. You don't want to see him on the streets. At the very least, you should officially end this relationship. You should say to each other, we are not boyfriends. We are not good together. Our relationship is too volatile. And maybe by... Ending the relationship, you will diffuse some of the confrontation, some of the violence. When he sleeps with somebody else, it isn't something that can anger you anymore because he's not your boyfriend. You're not in a relationship. So the things that he's done or doing or that you've done or you're doing that piss each other off and that escalate into physical confrontations, those reactions may be partly tied to this idea that he's your boyfriend and he has or the earlier call obligations to you, and he's violating those obligations. He's not being a good boyfriend, and boom, or that's how he feels. You're not being a good boyfriend, and boom, once you're not boyfriends anymore, maybe you both have less reason to explode at each other because you won't have expectations and obligations, right? If ending it doesn't 
allow you two to live together in some semblance of peace, if that doesn't create detente, then he will have to move out. He will have to shift for himself. He'll have to rely on his friends. He'll have to figure it out. Because living with each other until one or the other or both of you are in the hospital or in prison is the worst option. Your ex-boyfriend couch surfing for a while, also a bad option, but not as bad an option as you two continuing to live under the same roof and pummel each other. And finally, caller, regardless of what he decides to do, you should get into therapy, get into some anger management classes. Hey, Dan, this is Lee. Um, I'm a 23-year-old straight-ish girl, and I have a bit of a conundrum that I'm hoping you can help me hash out. A few weekends ago, some friends and I went out, and there was drinking involved, and we wound up at a bar, um, and I guess I struck up a conversation with some guy, or the conversation was struck up. Anyways, we must have hit it off. Um, I don't, memory's definitely a little bit foggy, and I decided it would be smart to leave with him, which um, I'm really not opposed to, um, but then again, there's always the actual physical like safety issue I'm a very kind of small person and um when alcohol is involved you just kind of never know so I went home with him and we hooked up and rolled around and I mean everything was very safe and um I know it was because I'm very insistent on that but anyway I woke up in the morning and um I guess I didn't realize I didn't know where we were he had gone to um turned out go get breakfast and it turned out he was a, a super sweet human but um when I woke up I had this 10 minute period of obviously panic like thinking I easily could have been you know interested into because I didn't know where I was my friends didn't know where I was it was basically I just felt I mean I felt so violated by the situation I had put myself in it was just it was one of them I felt so chastened by how I had behaved so my question is this guy, actually, he turned out to be very nice, um, and he has been reaching out to me, trying to take me out on a date or get to know me better, and just I am having a real difficult time even just communicating with him because of the sheer, just the sick to the pit of my stomach feeling I feel when I think about the situation I put myself in. You know, luckily, it didn't turn out to be Jeffrey Dahmer or... Uh, something like that but usually could have and no one would have known where I was or how I died and I just wanted to know if you think if you have any advice for a way to either get around this or if it's just something you that you think that I should just cut off communication with him because I'm not going to get over it um and that I I just need to take it as learning as learning and growing into a full-fledged adult why are you being so crazy oh no I'm being called crazy by Dan Savage. That hurts a little. Um, you, I don't know. You're being just a little irrational. Like the world is full okay. of happily married, happily partnered people who did exactly what you did. And, you know, there are graveyards that have, uh, you know, people in it who did exactly what you did. Yeah. Lacey Peterson was murdered by her husband. A third right, of all right. women who are murdered are murdered by men that they married. So yes. it's not as if getting to know someone really well before you take a chance and going home with them or spending any time with them is a surefire way to avoid violence or, or, right. or crazy people. Right. You took a little chance. 
That, that you, oh, that, I took a big chance. <laughs> you took a little chance. You're beating yourself up over this to such an extent that that it's it's insane. And okay. I wonder if it doesn't sort of stem from this, you know, a, a culture that mao maos women about their personal choices, and you know, we need more awareness about rape culture. We need to fight rape culture. I fight rape culture on this show, but you know that you met a guy at a bar and made a choice, although slightly impacted by alcohol as most choices are made um, around hooking up. There's often alcohol involved and you had a good gut feeling about him and the events have borne out your judgment. He was a nice, mm-hmm. sweet, kind guy who wasn't there when you woke up and you're a little disoriented and, and you had your little panic attack who was out getting <laughs> you fucking breakfast and you can't look at him and say, wow, that was a silly thing I did and maybe, you know, the kind of risk I don't normally take, but you're a good guy and so I'd like to keep seeing you. That, that you have to stuff this guy, you know, into a trash can because, <laughs> because he could have been Jeffrey Dahmer. Every guy could be Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, you're right. You should never date anybody. Like Lacey Peterson didn't think she was with Jeffrey Dahmer and she right, was. Right, right. Yes. And the world this it's yes. this weekend the world will be full of people hooking up, happily so with people they may see again or may never see again, without being murdered because most people aren't Jeffrey Dahmer and deserve some <laughs> benefit of the doubt. And we should be smart about the choices that we make, but there's no reward without a little risk. Right. And you took a tiny risk on this guy. <laughs> you took it you took a chance. You were and you were right to. He's a good guy. He's a decent guy. Maybe you would. Right. This isn't something you want to do again or make a habit of doing because there's risk inherent in this kind of getting a little tipsy and running home with a strange with someone you just met. Right. And, and you should be able to compartmentalize that. Like this isn't something I would do every day, every weekend. This isn't something. You know, this thing makes me a little nervous that I even did do it. And I'm going to set that aside because you're a good guy. Of all the guys in the world I could have done this for, taken this small risk or even this big risk. For the kind of guy who would slip out while I'm still asleep in his bed to get me breakfast. <laughs> retroactive. You have to give him like retroactive credit. You have to give yourself right. give yourself a little right. retroactive credit. That that you with your powers of intuition or your powers of judgment, your your ability to assess someone's character, did this thing that was a little risky, but not with a guy who was risky, because you're too good and too smart for that, I guess, right? Which is not to stigmatize people who went home with people who happened to be Jeffrey Dahmer, like my friend Tony did, right? Oh, no, absolutely not, because I felt like an idiot for doing it, because, it, you know, we hear stories like that, and, I mean, Yeah, but think, of, well, no, just... think, about, think about how many people hook up on a Saturday night. Yeah. You have to then keep things in perspective. Millions and millions of people are going to hook up this weekend. A lot of them are going to be drunk or tipsy, and that's going to impact their judgment, right? Yeah. And. Yeah. The vast and overwhelming majority of them are going to survive the hookup. And right. a percentage of them, a non-insignificant percentage of them, are going to continue to see the person they hook up with, get into a relationship with the person they hooked up with, <laughs> and be with that person for the rest of their lives. That's my story. Right, right. I took this strange okay. man home from a bar. He was fucked up. On, yeah, it's just, he was, um, it's he was high and I men. was drunk. It is different when it's two men, but my friend Tony went home with Jeffrey Dahmer and he ate him. Yeah. So it's not, true. it's not always different. Men are at risk. Not that I'm laughing. Yeah. Gay, gay men are also at risk of the kind of testosterone-soaked dick monster sexual violence that, that, that women are too yeah. often victimized 
buy. That gay men, that, that risk falls onto us too, to a certain extent, a lesser extent, right. to a certain extent. So people take these chances all the time. And most people survive them. Most people survive jumping out of airplanes. Most people survive skiing and snowboarding. Right. Some people slam into trees and die. And then we don't look at everybody else on the hill and go, you're a crazy person for snowboarding. Right. Because we say there's pleasure in snowboarding and people take risks for pleasure. Because the reward of the, the pleasure is the reward that makes the risk worthwhile. Mitigate for those risks. Control for them as best you can. But at a certain point, you just have to shoulder them. And that's what you did. And for the reward of intimacy, pleasure, sex, a connection, even if it was just for one night, that reward could be worth the risk. And that this guy is a good guy who wants to continue to see you and and you're refusing to see him because you took this chance on him. You're just, you're being crazy. You're allowing awareness about risks, danger to really screw up your dating and romantic and intimate life. Well, I mean, I don't think it would work. I, I really have a sense that it won't work out no matter what, but you're right. I am being a little bit crazy. Um, I just don't think that there's a lot of compatibility going on there no matter what. Okay, but then, then set him you aside. You are right. Stop slut-shaming yourself. Okay, thank you. Okay, okay, okay. And stop, risk, and stop risk-shaming yourself, too. Oh. You stepped out. You had an adventure. You, you did something a little out of character. You did something that you know, against your better judgment and it was a good time with a good guy. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're not in his freezer. No, I'm, you know, I'm speaking to you. So clearly, clearly not in a freezer. <laughs> and, if this, and if this is something when you, you know, in the cold, hard light of sober day, you look at this and think if I hadn't have been drinking, I would not have done this. Drink less. And tell your friends that you go out with, you know what, The one, uh, once or twice I've gone home with somebody when I had a little bit to drink and everything was fine and it went well, but I really regretted it. It made me feel bad. Don't let me leave with somebody if I get drunk. Put it on, <laughs> you know, rely on your friends for their support. Even if all they do is nudge you and say, you sure you want to do this? Last time you said, and you might say, yeah, this time I'm sure. Or, <laughs> or you might go, you know, you're right. And stick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick around and give the guy your phone number. But, right. but stop beating yourself up about this. You, you sound like a crazy person. Oh, my gosh. What did he get you for breakfast? Um, it was smoothies. There were smoothies. Aww. <laughs> Aww. You should see him. It was sweet. You should see him one more time. It was. Uh, uh, thanks neat. for the smoothie blowjob. Oh, oh, I don't know about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> even if you don't want to keep seeing him, you want to encourage this kind of good and thoughtful and considerate behavior. Yeah, you're right. You, you want to give the good guys a pat on the back when you can, I suppose. <laughs> That's right, which is best done with your soft palate. I can't believe you called me back. I, I truly can't believe it. Well, whenever we get a call from a crazy person, I feel obligated to jump on the phone. Oh, no. So now I'm going to look like one of the crazies, really, because I no, truly am not. <laughs> you're not crazy. You're just a little mildly crazy. A touch of the crazy. Oh, wow. But, but we've, we've, we've excised that from your character. You are no longer crazy. You are cured. Oh, perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, if I had a never get drunk and go home with a strange man policy, I wouldn't have met Terry. <laughs> oh, and then Instagram would be such a sad place. <laughs> exactly. Good luck. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. Uh, my girlfriend uh, asks my fashion opinion uh, all the time. You know, how does my ass look in this? And do you think these two things go together? Having watched every episode of Project One Way and having two functioning eyes, I feel pretty qualified to offer my opinion, and she's welcome to take it or leave it. But uh, 
and this is not where it's, where you think it's going. Uh, my question is about camel toe. Uh, I'm not certain how to categorize it. Uh, is it like a wardrobe malfunction, like if your fly is down or if your mascara is is running? Uh, is it a uh, social embarrassment, like having spinach tucked, you know, caught in your teeth? Uh, is it a poor fashion choice, like, hey, that dress is baggy and it makes you look fat, or those shoes don't match your purse? Or is it a way of dressing slutty, like having low-cut top or a uh, short skirt? Because I don't want to shame anybody, but I want to know my responsibility as her fashion advisor. And I also want to know if there's anything that can be done, because sometimes her crotch just wants to eat her pants. And I'd also like to hear what you have to say about the male equivalent, the moose knuckle. Thanks a lot. Joining me by phone to handle the camel toe, Simon Doonan. He's an author of numerous books, The Asylum, Beautiful People, pick them up, read them, they're hilarious, creative ambassador for Barney's New York, columnist for Slate, fashion maven, fashion icon, uh, Simon, there's so much wrong here, I don't know where to begin, a straight guy who's watched every episode of Project Runway, a straight girl who is turning to her straight boyfriend for fashion tips, camel toes, moose knuckles, what's your take? Well, um, first of all, I think in general, people overreact to camel toe. I mean, they usually get very disdainful and horrified and sort of, you know, reel back in horror. But the reality is we all came out of one of those. That's a vagina. And what you're seeing is the landscape of vagina emphasized through fabric, be it chiffon or jersey or whatever. So, so wait, so it, let me interrupt already. So you, you, Simon Doonan, fashion icon, author, columnist, you, you support the, the, the notion that the camel toe can be a fashion choice? Um, I support the notion that we should not be disdainful about it. If I see a chick coming down the street in her Stella McCartney jumpsuit and she's strutting confidently but unwittingly displaying her vagina via camel toe, I don't feel disdainful or inclined to mockery. I think, oh, it's like seeing someone with toilet paper stuck to their shoe. It's just, it's just one of those things that happens. And I think, you know, I'm glad that caller brought it up because, um, you know, for fall, jumpsuits are, are a huge trend. You know, they've really gathered steam, if you'll pardon the expression. And I think it's a re, it's a really good moment to raise the issue of camel toe. So I think first off, everyone needs to chill out. It's not that horrible. It's a vagina. It's where we all come from. So everyone needs to, to just, you know, when I see a chick all confident and displaying camel I just think it's a bit poignant. And I think, oh, honey, maybe you need some more sturdy foundation garments, really, <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to rock a jumpsuit or a tight pair of pants. And it's just not that big a deal. I mean, it's my punk rock side comes out. And I just think, oh, God, everyone's so conventional that they're just horrified by camel toe. There's a lot worse things in the world. And that is a vagina where we all came from. Hello? Okay, no, wait. But you did compare it to having toilet paper on your shoe, which is, I guess, analogous to having food in your teeth. Would you say something to someone? I don't care about those things either. I think it's kind of great when somebody has toilet paper on their shoe. Well, maybe um, that'll be a trend next year uh, yeah. coming out of the fat. Some people going down the runway, it's a toilet paper stuck their shoe. But would you say something? I mean, his question is, when he sees a camel, when his girlfriend is camel towing, 
does he say something to her? Yeah, he says to her, you know, listen, um, we live in a in a really wacky all bets are off society um, where, but do you really want to go out showing the anatomical landscape of your vagina, which is what you're seeing there, especially now that women remove all their hair. If you get some lightweight jersey or some silk chiffon near near your areas, um, they're going to highlight all the bumps and lumps, which is fine, except I've always been a big believer in foundation garments. I myself favor a sturdy pair of panties, and that will sort of even things out. Okay, so um, with you running around in a sturdy pair of panties, then that means you never have the dreaded moose knuckle problem? Yeah, again, moose knuckle, I think, is a separate issue because, I mean, women tend to come in for an immense amount of criticism for their appearance. Oh, look at her. She's too this. She's too that. Look at how mean people were about Kim Novak, the Academy Awards. She's like a thousand years old. Jesus, what do they want? But so women get criticized a lot for nipples showing through, camel toe, whatever. I think everyone needs to become a bit more feminist about it and relax. With moose knuckle, I think it's it's a personal thing. I myself have never liked that. You know, some people think it's very sexy when you see a guy walking down the street with it all jiggling around in a thin linen yoga pant. I don't. I mean, I like I love a swimsuit bulge. I love a Levi bulge. A nice sort of well manicured bulge is where it's at for me. But again, that's a very personal thing. So some people like adore a moose knuckle. It's incredibly personal. And of course, bringing going full circle, some people really get off on camel toe. I would imagine. I would imagine if I allowed myself to imagine those sorts of things, but I don't because I want to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> while, while I have you on the phone, before I let you go, did you watch the Emmys? Of course you watched the Emmys. I did. Lena Dunham's dress. Oh, she looked great. All those other women look madly conventional to me. They, those red, I'm not a gown person. I don't like gowns. Gowns are boring. And, and the one trend you've seen over the last 20 years on the red carpet is gowns have become more conventional because... People are so worried about being ripped to shreds the next day. So Lena Dunham flung on that tutu from Giambattista Valley with a little silk shirt. She, you know, I thought she looked great, and I just wanted to come to her defense with you. I'm so glad that you liked it too, because I think a lot of the criticism that she was inevitably going to come in for, no matter what the fuck she wore, is about anger about her body and anger about the way she displays her body in her television show. People are always piling on her, and I looked at that dress and I thought, awesome, because what she's saying is, you know what? Fuck you in advance, because there's nothing I can wear that isn't going to rile up the haters. So I'm going to wear something crazy and fun and outrageous. It was like uh, Bjork in her swan dress at the, I, I don't know, Emmys or Oscars or wherever that fuck that was 15, 20 years ago. That's the only dress anybody remembers from that decade. And everyone slammed her for it. It was awesome. And Lena's dress was awesome. And I loved her for wearing it. Yeah, she's great. And you're 100% right. If people are mad at her and bitching her out is because they don't like themselves. I mean, she's just a groovy, creative chick who's accomplished so much. Just shut up and enjoy it. And believe me, the, she's a, her body, she's not fat. She has an average body. But all those actresses are so anorexic, they throw on a gown and they look a certain way when photographed. And, you know, you have to keep that in mind, too. Lena Dunham's just a regular chick 
Thank God for it. She's not a regular chick. She's an exceptional chick who's very creative, very special. And she's like camel toe. We should give her a lot more respect and stop <laughs> reacting so disdainfully. You heard it here first. Lena Dunham is like camel toe and deserves respect. <laughs> you, you and I are such a couple of gay feminist bitches. We are. You know, you were totally walking that feminist line. I thought you were totally 100% feminist score. Jezebel was going to praise you until you compared being able to see a vagina with toilet paper stuck to a shoe. I thought <laughs> I, I thought you got 10 points off the 100% feminist score for that. Well, brace yourself because all those jumpsuits are going to be on every street corner in Seattle and in New York City this fall. Oh, my God. Are they Not for men, though, right? I'm not going to come home to find my husband in a jumpsuit, am I, with a big moose knuckle? Oh. <laughs> Definitely. It's going to be a poochy one, though. I'm just warning you. More of a unitard than a jumpsuit. Simon Doonan, author and creative ambassador of Barney's New York. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone and helping us handle the moose knuckle and the camel toe. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old female living on the East Coast, and I am calling to ask you about butt sex as a simple answer. Inspired by Don John, remarkably, my boyfriend of 10 months and I had a long conversation about kinks and sexual desires the other night, I guess more like a month and a half ago, and we sort of got to the fact that um, his biggest kink is thoughts. You know, in that regard, we sort of changed things up since, me playing with his asshole, me being willing, he's also into me having a dick um, and I'd be willing to do that um, to get a strap on and like indulge that and then see if it could be fun for me Um, but he also would like to fuck me in the ass I was not opposed to the idea but a few weeks after we first talked about it we were having sex doggy and things slipped and he penetrated my asshole for a second and it was really painful and he like came the second it happened and like collapsed on top of me and I was crying and it took him a second to realize it. And it was this really scary like moment for me. And I went to the bathroom and realized I was bleeding and we could talk about it. But ever since then, you know, we haven't talked about how he first said he wanted to try that for real, not by accident. And I guess I'm just asking for advice, how to bring it up now that I'm not sure how, game I am right now um, and what it's going to take to get me there, how to make me comfortable, not afraid it's going to hurt like that and I don't want to bleed it blood for days. I don't know where to start. So I'm just looking for some advice on how to get over this nervousness and how to broach the subject after that sort of traumatic event that happened. Um, I want to give my man all the butt that he wants but um, I just need some help. A couple years ago in the podcast I cast dispersions on the notion that you could accidentally fuck somebody in the ass. I said that that wasn't a thing that could happen. Uh, and I said that from a place of, I thought sort of high information. I have a lot of information about ass fucking cause that is something that I have been doing for a long time. And I have never in my life had an experience where I accidentally fucked somebody in the ass. I didn't think that that was possible to just go from not in someone's ass to slammed into their ass at a go, how you could do that without breaking your dick off. But we heard from a lot of people, men and women, that this is a thing that 
happens. It seems to be a thing that happens in heterosexual sex where there's slamming in and out of a hole that's already down there at a certain pace, a certain velocity, and then there's a subtle repositioning and a thrust pulled out a little too far and shoved back at the other hole down there or one of the other holes down there uh, with a dick already lubed and all of that area already aroused uh, and in play. And indeed, a dick can slam into an asshole by accident. Uh, So I don't think that your boyfriend who's interested in ass seized the opportunity and did this on purpose because this is a thing that happens. Uh, And that's not even your question. You're not wondering whether it was his intent to accidentally shove his dick all the way up your ass, come immediately and then collapse on top of you while you sobbed. But that wasn't his intent or goal. That was just what went down. Uh, But how do we reverse engineer an interest in anal sex for you after this traumatic introduction to anal penetration? I don't know. My best advice would be to explore anal with him on the receiving end for a very long time. Get that strap on dildo, peg the shit out of him, figuratively speaking, uh, and be the top. And I'm not advising that you do this as some sort of elaborate extended revenge scenario, but to acclimate yourself, to, to witness being on the receiving end of anal pleasure. You in this relationship, because your partner who's interested in your ass is also interested in his own being penetrated, you can witness someone receiving anal and deriving a lot of pleasure from it and be the instrument of that pleasure again and again and again and again and again. And just the process, just the process of osmosis and assimilation, watching that happen could eventually put you more at ease about the idea of yourself experimenting again with penetration anally of your own butt under better, more controlled circumstances. So fuck him in the ass. Fuck him in the ass for a long time. Watch what he gets out of it and maybe that will bring you around. Maybe that will help relax you. Maybe that will put some distance and mileage and experience between your traumatic introduction to anal penetration and the anal penetration you may enjoy at some point down the road. Also, my advice for you around anal is... Don't start with dick. Don't start with dick when it's your butt's turn. If he's ready for pegging and wants to strap on dildo, go for it. But when it's your butt's turn, tongue, fingers to a much lesser extent, toys, a couple of butt plugs, vibrating uh, butt plugs or eggs that you can experiment with and enjoy while you enjoy your orgasms. And that is a really good way to sort of rewire your brain around your butt. If you can associate some limited, low-stakes anal pleasure with your own orgasms, with other pleasures, uh, and and that anal stimulation isn't goal-focused. It's not focused on him or his dick or getting him off or letting him use your ass, but it's focused on your ass and its pleasure. That may also help. So fuck him in the ass. Get a couple of little vibrating anal eggs that you are in control of, that you are in charge of, that you put in yourself that he doesn't even get to touch or look at or turn on or anything. And it may bring you around. But it's going to be a long, long process. And you should take your time. And also, there are some people who just don't like anal. 25% of gay men don't like anal. Even if this awful thing, this sudden dick up your ass had never happened, you might have been one of those people who when you gave anal its fair shot and you tried and you explored, just came to the conclusion that it wasn't for you, it wasn't pleasurable, and it wasn't something you wanted to continue 
uh, incorporating into your sex life. So if that is the case, if in the end of this fucking in the ass process and experimenting with some little vibrating toys or fingers or tongues, you conclude that anal isn't for you, you don't necessarily have to credit that to the trauma, that that could be a coincidence. You can't experience that kind of trauma, what happened to you, and also be the kind of person who, even if that hadn't happened, you wouldn't have ever really gotten into anal. So give yourself a break and give him a break also if in the end of all this playing and exploring, it's just not for you. That's okay. And the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth would like to award you with the GGG Medal of Honor because you are being so cool and so good and so giving and forgiving about this anal stuff. Hi, Dan. My name is Will, and I'm a 27-year-old heterosexual male from Philadelphia. And uh, my question concerns online dating and the, uh, the kink community. I'm actually, uh, I've been online dating for about three years now and have experienced great success. Honestly, the past three years, every other week, I've had a date. Um, sometimes even more. <laughs> um, I'm also a, uh, consider myself to be a, I say this, and a dom. Um, and I had a girlfriend of mine a few years back. She got me really into it, the community. I really love it. Uh, it's something that, honestly, I need in a relationship. I don't feel fulfilled without it. Uh, and it's just a, a part of, you know, my sexual past and, and, and you know, current <laughs> present, I guess you could say. Uh, so my main concern, I guess the main, main question is, you know, when filling out my, my online profile on OkCupid or, or sites like Tinder, should I include that I am a dom or that I am a sadist? Um, because I, I found, I don't know, I, and I go back on, back and forth about whether or not I should do this because, uh, for one, a lot of the subs that I had in the past um, did not know they were subs. There were girls I met on OkCupid and then went on dates or um, became girlfriends, and then I got them involved and kind of ushered them into it, and I love doing that as well. You know, people who are, you know, completely new to the scene and they find out that they love it and they love, you know, um, they're, they're, you know, they you know they were masochists, but, you know, I taught them uh, how to be one. Uh, and then, uh, but however, the other side of that is I've had girls who were, I've gotten into relationships with them or, or gave them a few times, uh, sort of having sex with them. Uh, they knew I, I was into these things. I'm very open and honest about it. Uh, however, they just did it because they wanted to please me. And I can feel that. And I, I don't really enjoy that. I know that they're just pretending because, uh, they, you know, because they, they know that I just want it. Um, so like I said, my question for you is, is should I put it on, and maybe your listeners as well, should I put it on my profile, or do you think that will still scare, you know, potential, potential matches and other subs uh, away? As I said before, as I said to Jillian Keenan uh, when she was on the show uh, last week or the week before, two kinds of people you meet at big kink events, people who have been kinky all their lives and people who met somebody that was kinky fell in love with that person and kind of got into kink and it awakened something in them. Putting your kinks, Dom and Sadist, on your OkCupid profile will attract uh, women who already know themselves to be kinky and uh, submissive and perhaps masochistic, but it will repel women who are in that second group, those people who met and fell in love with somebody who was kinky who then disclosed and they kind of gave it a try because they were invested in this person already. Um, and it seemed less scary coming from this person that they knew to be a good person. Uh, those women won't come into your orbit anymore. Those women won't respond to your profile anymore. So you say you've met a few women like that and that you've enjoyed that, that you've met women who were vanilla and you sort of brought out the sub thing that was already in there. And you've also, to your credit, met women who weren't vanilla and you didn't hammer away at it if they weren't interested. Um, you're capable of having vanilla sex and enjoying it and uh, you weren't – just on the prowl necessarily for women you could flip into subs. But putting it on your profile, it's a double-edged sword and going to cut one way and attract women who are 
kinky and it's going to cut another way and it's going to cut out of your life, out of your dating life, out of your romantic life. Those women who you were able to bring it out in, those women who gave it a try because they liked you and trusted you and you awoke it because they liked you and then they trusted you and you woke something in them that was there. So should you put it on your profile? Shouldn't you put it on your profile? Well, only you can answer that question. What do you want? You want to attract more kinky women? Great. You want to attract more women? You don't have to do that work. Awakening the sub inside them? Put it on your profile. But if you enjoy, as you seem to indicate, that awakening process, don't put it on your profile. Hi, I'm calling about episode 409 concerning the gentleman who is in a long-term relationship with the sexual assault survivor. I'm myself a survivor, and I'm currently married to the man who helped me through it. I have been in therapy for just a few months when I met my now husband, and he has supported me all the way. I am still seeing that same therapist. It's been years, but I would like to address the gentleman. You're doing all the right things. You're being so supportive. I would say, give her space too. Give her space to tell you how you can support the work she's doing in therapy because it is work. You can support her, but this is not your mountain to climb. It's hers. Be there for her. Do what you can for her. Don't go to therapy with her. The therapy that you're doing between a therapist and rape survivor, there's not room for you. Um, if you let her listen to this, if I could address your girlfriend, you are strong, you are brave, you are awesome, and you can do it. Therapy is so much work, and I bet you are working so hard. Just dig deeper. Sex is not off limits for you. Find your real triggers. Sex does not have to be a trigger. For myself, I had to dig really deep. It took a long time. But we figured out, me and my therapist, that some of my triggers are sounds and smells that were related to my abuse. And one of them, just to anecdotally give an example, my husband and I had been together for a while. We had been having sex, and all of a sudden, I freaked out on him um, right in the middle and had to stop. And I couldn't figure out why. My therapist and I worked together and went into granular detail, as super uncomfortable as it was, and figured out... He changed hair products, and the hair product he used was the same hair product that I had been wearing when I was assaulted. So that smell triggered it for me, not the sex. Stick with this boy. You know, there's not a lot of men that would support you the way that this guy will. There's not many good guys like that out there. I think that if you continue to work and he continues to support you, you can make it work. But it is work. Remember that it is work, it is work, and it's work, and you will continue to work for a long time, but it is worth it. Keep going. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling in response to the caller on the show that she did with Mary Martone, um, who was the gay guy who was feeling curious about experiences with women. I just want to say I am a self-identified gay man who was in his position and went and tried it and ended up loving it. So what does that make me now? Well, I don't know. Am I still a gay man or am I something else? It's, it's up for debate, and I'm not even decided. And I think the reason that you don't hear about this from gay guys is because my experience, at least, has been that gay culture is super gynophobic. There's, like, a real gross-out factor. I mean, imagine being a gay guy and saying to another group of your friends who are all gay men, oh, I ate pussy the other night. 
you would get ridiculed. They'd laugh you out the room. So, I mean, I think that's why we don't hear about it is because there's a stigma around it. And furthermore, I think that this whole thing about male sexuality not being fluid is total bullshit. Like I said, I think it's all related to just this kind of stigma around it. I believe that men are probably every bit as flexible as we think that women might be. They just aren't really being encouraged to experience it yet. So who knows? Maybe that's where we're going. And my advice to the caller is just do it. Like, try it. What what, what are you going to find out? Maybe you don't like it. Okay, so then you don't have to do it again. But you might find out that you really like it. And if that's the case, hey, be your own person. Do whatever you want to do and be on the cutting edge for once because you're going to feel better about yourself having found that out. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Simon Doonan on Twitter at Simon Doonan. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.